Father, you have given us your word that we may know all things for life, for doctrine, for training in righteousness. We thank you for it, and I pray that you would open it to us today, that the words that I speak would not be my own, but yours alone. In Christ's name, amen. Sermon text this morning is Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, and I will read that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. The sermon title in your bulletin says, Prayer Between Two Worlds. Um, as I worked further on this, it became work and prayer between two worlds. So um, that's my fault that the, uh, the, the title is a little shorter than it should be. Uh, you know, one of the great struggles of the church over the last hundred years or so uh, has been a struggle of identity. Um, the church seems to have forgotten who she is um, or finds a tension between, between who she was um, in unbelief, and who she is now, the bride of Christ. And this often manifests itself in, in various methods uh, which are employed by the bride to remain relevant uh, to this uh, wicked world. Uh, frequently, though, the attempt works in reverse, and we end up going back to our worldly ways. Uh, we don't act as a bride inviting others to the great wedding feast Uh, We end up dining on the scraps of sinful humanity, thinking we're being relevant or engaging. There's a tension between this world and the next, and we feel that acutely, especially in the church, because we're called to live between these two worlds. So what I'd like to share with you today is some of what it means to live in this tension and how that relates to two main areas of our lives, prayer and work. Much of today's confusion is the result of a lack of information. Uh, That's not to say that everything would be cleared up if we just had all the facts, but the Christian faith is a faith that has content to it, and that content has to be communicated faithfully in order for us to understand our position before God, our status in His kingdom, and the way to obey Him. This lack of proper education is the fault of the leaders of the church and can't be on any other shoulders. For too long, the church in many places has also taught that our religion is a religion of experience. That is, we often say we know who God is and what he's done primarily because he's changed our lives or because we feel his presence in our hearts. The theme for the present generation could be uh, the line from the song, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. We're often afraid to admit to ourselves that if the tomb is not empty, then our faith is not true. Ours is a religion of facts, not feelings, not experiences. Those things may come along, but the facts are what make our religion true or what make it relevant. 
And so we've lost the importance of the facts of our religion, and we've lost our understanding of how the church relates to the world. We become churches that long to give experiences. We love bandwagons and fads. We love uh, the new, the spectacular, uh, the exotic. I mean, really, would you be disappointed if we had 5,000 people in this church right now? Really? No. No. Even if the teaching, maybe the teaching were a little watered down, maybe the sacraments, you know, we'll, we'll do that, you know, every couple, you know, twice a year or something. But we have 5,000 people. What would that be like? Pretty exciting. If somebody were to pay for it, all expenses paid, would you rather go to Benson on a missions trip or Australia? Come on. We like exciting things. We like exotic things. We'll go to the corners of the earth, but what about our next-door neighbor? And it gets even more personal when we think that the four corners of the earth have come to our doorstep. And the bride of Christ um, panics. Often these people move from the four corners to the suburbs, I mean, to the city centers. And where do we go? We run away. Now, I'm not saying you're in sin because you live in the suburbs, if you do. But what is our motivation if we live there? What is our motivation for a church that moves from the city to the suburbs? We have to consider these things. Oftentimes, I think it's because we're afraid. There's a poster I love uh, from the movie Kill Bill. Not a family-friendly movie. (laughs) But on this poster is Uma Thurman dressed in a wedding gown, wielding a samurai sword. And I love that picture of the church. Here's the bride of Christ with a sword. Because we have a sword. And... You know, we have the gospel, we have the word, and sometimes we fail to remember that that sword involves us in a full contact reality with our neighbors. Now, the enemy, of course, is sin, and the sword of the gospel attacks that sin, and our sword both judges and redeems. And so having confronted the power and justice and the mercy of God, some lay dying, while others find the cut of the blade's edge to have killed them and then made them alive. Because that's what God does. He kills us and makes us alive, makes us rise to new life in Christ. And having been healed, then we take up that sword ourselves and proceed into the streets and the marketplaces. But across the nation, perhaps across the world, the church has lost an understanding of this reality. We've succumbed to this sort of passive-aggressive, individualistic, this individualistic narcissism that um, pervades our society. Narcissism is navel-gazing, in case you didn't know. And the only sword we wield often is the one of the culture wars. The culture wars have systematically and effectively destroyed the church's ability to share the gospel. We don't weep for the woman contemplating an abortion. We stand on street corners and yell at them. We don't put our arms around the addicts or the homosexuals. We mock them. We make fun of them. 
and we look for ways to remove them from our clean Christian society, the one we think we have. I know this is all a bit harsh, but I also know that we're all guilty of this to one degree or another, myself included. And yet something else is true of us as well. So let's turn our attention from what's wrong with us to uh, something that's actually been done about it. And we see this in our passage this morning. I'm going to read it again, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, we participate in an incarnational faith. Now, this word incarnational has been abused a lot lately. Uh, it's, it's been taken for this idea that uh, Christians are to be incarnational. We are to do what Jesus did, go in, going into our communities, putting on their flesh, and serving them. Now we're supposed to do that, but that's not being incarnational. The idea of us being incarnational is arrogant, as though we're, we're up here somewhere and we need to condescend. It was Jesus who condescended to us from heaven. We cannot be incarnational. We're already in the flesh. We're already homeless. We're already dirty. We're already poor. We need Christ just as much as they do. We need his body and blood to be broken for us. Our faith being incarnational means one thing only, that we believe that Jesus became incarnate for us. And that was his taking on flesh, dying in the flesh, being raised in glorified flesh. And that tells us that one day we will take on glorified flesh as well. And that even now we have been raised with him and are seated in heavenly places, as our passage tells us. There's a sense in which we are united with him in heaven and are seated in heaven awaiting the great consummation. So our position in heaven is exalted. Our position on earth is still humble, still painful, still poor, still dirty. So what does it mean that we're seated in heavenly places? I mean, what's the value of that? If our position on earth really doesn't sort of change, what's the value of saying we're seated in heaven? Is it just a nice thing to think? Or does it have any sort of reality for us in our lives? Well, in order to understand that, we first have to understand our position in Adam when we were first created, when man was first placed in the garden. So I want to look briefly at that status, very briefly. Uh, we find that chiefly in Genesis 1, of course. Um, the first chapter in Genesis has a structure to it. Um, this structure can be confusing. A lot of people say that um, the structure that, that is in Genesis 1 tells us that we don't have um, you know, six literal days of creation. Um, I'm not here to argue that point one way or the other today. Um, both sides see this structure, both sides of that argument. And the structure is that of kingdoms and kings. God creates kingdoms, and then he puts kings over uh, those kingdoms. In Genesis 1-3, for instance, God creates the kingdom of light and day. He creates this realm. 
And in verse 14, he creates the kings of the sun and the moon, even using language where he says they're to rule over the night and the day. Verses 6 through 8, he creates the kingdom of skies and oceans. And in verses 20 through 22, he creates their kings, birds, sea-dwelling creatures. And in verse 9, God creates the land kingdom, and then beasts to live on that land. And finally, God creates man and woman, and he places them in rulership over all of it, kings over all the earth. Now you say, well, man's just on land in this, at this point. Well, he's not anymore. What other creature has gone in air, in water, in space? Man has taken dominion over the earth. He is a king over the earth. Finally, at the end of the creation account, God inaugurates the Sabbath, finishes his work, and sets himself up as king over all the universe. He is Lord of all of it. And of course, mankind fell, lost his ability to perfectly rule creation. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And now instead of enjoying a peaceful rule over creation, in some ways we almost become subject to it. The normal processes of childbirth and labor become painful and full of trouble. Even though man ruled the earth, and as man rules the earth, now the earth becomes this unwilling subject, fighting back against man's efforts to subdue it. Thorns and thistles that come from the ground. But as Romans 5.14 tells us, Adam was a type. He was a figure, prefigurement of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. Adam was created with kingship over earthly and visible things, while Christ is the ruler over all things, visible and invisible. Colossians 1.16 tells us that. Because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we're restored to our original status as kings on the earth. However, we're restored to this position only in Christ. So as Christ reigns over creation, so we too, in a sense, reign with him, even though we still suffer from the effects of the fall. Now this directly relates to how we're to live in the world. As Christians, we live very firmly in this world, on this earth, because we're human. But also as Christians, we have citizenship in heaven, just as firmly and just as surely. So again, our place, our place in the church, our place as Christians is this in-between two worlds, between earth and heaven. While we're still these earth-bound misfits in need of God's grace, yet in Christ we've been made to sit in heavenly places where Christ is. This gives us certain duties. In Christ we're made priests, whereby we look to God on behalf of the world and intercede for it. God then works through us to bring blessing to the world and the church. This is not to say that we're on any level equal to Christ in what he does, but that only highlights the privilege which has been given to us in Christ, that we should be made partakers of the providence of God. Simply put, God lets us be part of what he does on earth. This is clearly seen in the Great Commission, just as a brief example. Um, the church is told to go and make disciples. Well, Jesus had picked his disciples, and he tells the church to go and make more disciples. Well, couldn't God just continue sort of zapping people? Uh, you be my disciple, you, you, you know. No, he uses the church. Now, he did zap Paul. There are exceptions. <laughs> but he doesn't do that as a matter of course. That's extraordinary work. God works through his people to bring about his will on earth. 
So let's see what this looks like on the ground. Adam, the first human, was king by virtue of his rule over the earth and a priest by his direct access to God. Jesus, the new human and therefore inaugurator of this new humanity, is king by virtue of his reclaiming rule over the earth and a priest by virtue of his direct access to God, which he exercises on our behalf. In Christ, we're partakers of this new humanity. And we have all the benefits that are given to him in his exalted position. How is it then that we most exemplify this? How do we most effectively participate in the providence of God and intercede on behalf of others? There are two ways. Among others, probably, the two chief ways are vocation and prayer. Through vocation, we use the gifts God has given us to love and serve our neighbors. Now, there's many vocations. Everyone has several vocations. A lot of times we think of vocation as being our job, the thing we do to make money for eight or ten hours a day. Um, you know, it's, it's where we go to work. That's our vocation. But that's a very limited view. And actually, it was the Reformation that, that sort of expanded this view of vocation that kind of broke this open for us. It said, no, vocation is every sphere of life in which you live. A man is a husband. He can be a father. He can, uh, his job is part of his vocation. Um, he can be a son. A woman is a mother and a daughter and um, an entrepreneur, a neighbor. We all have various vocations, all various spheres in which God works through us to bring about his will on the earth. We often think of the work of God as something that's limited to the church, but it's not. His work spans all that goes on in the earth. We ask God to provide for us, and he does. How does he provide for us? Well, I had an omelet this morning. He provided chickens. He provided a farmer to get those eggs. He provided a delivery truck to bring those eggs to Trader Joe's or wherever they came from. He provided a car to go to Trader Joe's and pick them up. The chain's endless, if you really start thinking about it. The way God provides for us, not that spectacular, kind of ordinary, you know, grungy guys in delivery trucks, you know, you know, dirty chickens in a farm, but that's how God's providing for us. Ordinary things. Ordinary people doing ordinary jobs. I would recommend to you um, a book, and I'm actually going to read a, a little section from it later, uh, by Gene Edward Veith called God at Work that discusses this doctrine of vocation. It will change your life, I promise you. It's fantastic. Because it tells us how our ordinary, the ordinary stuff we do every day is actually how God is at work in the world. And hand in hand with vocation is our priestly office of prayer. Um, in fact, back in the day, um, I don't know how long ago, maybe they still have this in Europe, especially Germany, um, because vocation was such a big idea there, they would have signs in their offices that would say, Ora et Labora, prayer and work. The two things go hand in hand. And by prayer, we lay hold of the promises of God. As Calvin says, uh, it's therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. For there is a communion of men with God by which, having entered the heavenly sanctuary, they appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience where necessity so demands that what they believed was not in vain. 
Therefore we see that to us nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not also bidden to ask of Him in prayers. Vocation and prayer, asking, doing. This is how God works on the earth. This is how He works through His people. As Luther says, vocation is not really so much about what I do in my work, but as what God is doing through me in my work. And how wonderful it is that he should choose to work through us this way. How wonderful that we're able to cry to him, Abba, Father, as we read earlier. This is the cry of the Holy Spirit within us. It's the cry of a people who have been redeemed and are being made new. It's the cry of the image of God which is being restored, which longs to see the earth filled with the glory of God. So how does this talk of vocation and prayer help us with our identity crisis that we mentioned at the beginning? Well, it gives us our place. It helps us understand what the priesthood of all believers means. It doesn't mean that we all have to be involved in church work in order for what we do to be meaningful. It means that even our secular vocations are used by God to provide for the world. It means that since we have access to God equally, we can all call on Him equally. And it keeps us from pandering to um, worldly desires, too. It makes us dependent on God for all we need. And when we focus on methods and techniques for drawing people to church, uh, we miss the fact that God draws people to himself through the Holy Spirit working in their hearts through the ordinary vocations of his people and the ordinary ministry of his church. The unchurched don't care about what kind of music a church has. I just read a survey recently that said they, they asked, I don't know how many unchurched folks, they asked, what's the chief thing you look for in a church? And I believe it was 85% said the doctrine and theology that a church teaches. These are people that don't go to church. They don't care how you dress. They don't care if there's a coffee bar or not. They care about what's being taught. They care whether or not people love them and show them that love. When the church loses its vocation of word and sacrament, it loses the only thing God's really given it to teach others. When it forgets its vocation of being a neighbor, it loses a key player in how God reaches our neighbors. When Christians forget that God is working through us in our ordinary vocations to love and serve people around us, we miss the greatest opportunity God has given us to be a light in a dark world. What we will soon realize then is that our vocations bring suffering. And this is especially where we see the importance of prayer. I just want to close with a, a section here from, from Beath's book. Um, it's good. It's worth, it's worth uh, a quoting. It's a little bit lengthy, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's worthwhile. What prayer does is to bring God into our vocations. Of course, God operates in them without our prayer. But as Luther's Catechism says of the fourth petition in the Lord's Prayer, God gives daily bread indeed without our prayer, also to all the wicked. But we pray in this petition that he would lead us to know it and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. That is, prayer can lead God to intervene in our situations, but prayer also affects us. When we so much as ask for our daily bread, it is not our prayer that makes God give it to us, as though if we did not pray, we would starve for lack of food. Rather, God in his mercy to all the world provides our daily bread, working through the natural order, and specifically through vocation.
God gives daily bread even to the wicked. But when we pray, we know it. We realize with an increasingly thankful heart that it is God who is feeding us. When we pray, we recognize our dependence on Him and we turn ourselves over to His will. When we pray in our vocations, we recognize their connection to God, to His will, to His judgments and His grace. We have said that God is hidden in vocation. In prayer, we get a glimpse of Him. The mask is lifted. This book is based on a, um, another book by uh, Gustav Wingren, who wrote a book called Luther on Vocation. And he says, Prayer is the door through which God, Creator and Lord, enters creatively into home, community, and labor. When we try to fulfill our vocations without prayer, he says, we are in effect, as far as we are concerned, shutting him out from our work. Therefore, vocation, which involves the total of a person's relationships and his situation, can be properly fulfilled only by constantly renewed prayer. We pray for our needs and our vocations, whether the problem is in the family or in the workplace, the community or the church, and God answers in terms of our vocations. He may indeed intervene to resolve the problem. He may come to see the problem as an intimation of his wrath and judgment, moving us in conjunction with God's word to repent and to seek his forgiveness. Or we may realize that we need to forgive those in our vocation who have trespassed against us. But however God chooses to answer our prayers, whether by changing the situation or by changing us, we have given the outcomes over to him. Our part is to carry out our vocations. The outcome belongs completely to the Lord. And I pray that this would be an encouragement to you as you seek to live out your vocations, working and praying to the glory of God. Let's pray and close. Father, thank you for giving us uh, things to do. And thank you for working through them. And thank you for providing for us, for our every need, through such ordinary means, yet they become extraordinary when we know that you are at work through them. And we thank you for this, Father. I pray that that thought would stick with us throughout the week. In Christ's name, amen.